0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Far-right nationalist yahoos in Germany plot to overthrow the government. What could go wrong? Disputes among European leaders regarding whether or not the time has come to talk to Russia and Australia to become a staging post for more American military personnel. I'm Andrew Miller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Simon Brook will discuss all the day's big stories, and as it seems to be the season for semi-spurious Word of the Year announcements, we'll discuss which words have been 2022's Mist Most Pronounced. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. (laughs) This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Latika Burke, a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and by the journalist and communications consultant Simon Brook. Welcome both back to the Monocle Daily. Hello, Andrew. Hello, good to be back. Uh, Of late, we have been doing light introductory banter World Cup discourse. Have either of you been paying any attention at all? I mean, obviously, Latika, our team are now out after our heroic resistance against Argentina.
1: Well, I have a confession to make. I no longer back Socceroos number one. Good Lord. I'm I'm going for England this year.
0: Latika, you're Australian and you're going for England. There's rules about this. I mean, look,
1: if it was in the cricket... (coughs) different story. I could never bring myself to support England in the cricket. But in the football, you know, Andrew, we've done so poorly in football for so long, I almost forget we're a team sometimes.
0: We've done so, well, part of the reason we've done so poorly is of course that we invented our own football, which is better, but we're the only people- controversial statement. We're the only people who play it. There is in fact an Australian Rules Football World Cup in which Australia doesn't compete because we just win it all the time, that is true. (laughs) literally um
2: simon have you been paying much attention do you know what i haven't andrew i'm, I'm sorry I'd, I'd love to i'd love to throw something in here but it started off outrage at the the whole questionable ethics of this uh, competition and then to be honest i just got bored as well um, i'm just <laughs> sorry i'm just i'm just a bit awkward i'm afraid and it's just when everybody's talking about it and at the beginning i felt obliged to at least know something about it so i could make small talk at parties and before meetings with it and now i'm i'm just No, I've had enough, You've sort of lapsed into a kind of belligerent irritation. Absolutely, exactly. It is a total conversation killer, but I don't care. I'm going to be honest and say I just couldn't care less.
0: There was many years ago in Melbourne, uh, launched by a writer whose name now escapes me, an anti-football league, and and his idea was that everybody who joined would be issued with a lapel badge in the the shape of a cube, uh, evocative of something which would not bounce, and that they could gravitate towards each other at gatherings and actually have
2: intelligent conversations. I think I could start the UK chapter of that very easily.
0: <laughs> well, we will, however, start the show proper in Germany, where a group of far-right kooks with delusions of teutonic grandeur have apparently been conspiring to seize control, control rather of the state, despite what would seem fairly stringent warnings from history that this sort of caper is unlikely to end well. German police have arrested 25 people in raids across the country. They had allegedly been plotting to storm the Reichstag, depose Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and install in his place a tweed-wearing weirdo who insists on being addressed as Heinrich the Thirteenth? Arrests were also made in Austria and Italy. Um, Latika, do we have any sense yet, do you think, of how seriously we are supposed to take any of this?
1: Well, I think we've been taking the threat of far-right extremism not seriously enough for too long. And I know that even in Australia there was... Uh, a real reluctance to deem and investigate far-right extremism in the same way Mm. that you would uh, Islamic terrorism, for instance. So I thought this was very extraordinary uh, and and very good work by the Germans. What is so scary about the reporting and what's coming out of Germany is the variety of people who seem to be signing up to these uh, wacko conspiracy Mm -hmm. Jobs And not just conspiracy theories, not just indulging in the online chat, but actually wanting to carry those actions out with violence. This is terrifying. Some of those occupations are a gourmet chef, people you would just walk alongside in society, Um, by no means people you would expect to be, you know, basement dwellers uh, and keyboard warriors. So I do think that uh, our governments uh, have been a bit too slow to take this seriously. But of course... January 6th showed us how real this threat is. And now, thanks to the internet and very swift radicalisation, how easily words can tip into violent action.
0: I mean, the, the trouble there is, of course, Simon, that something can be both ridiculous And menacing. And it's often hard to know whether one is just one of those things or a bit of both uh, and in what proportions. But there's a few things there that Latika has raised, which we will come back to. But first of all, the location of this one, um, all jokes aside, do we think that Germany and German law enforcement is a bit more sensitive about this sort of thing, i.e. ranting far-right nationalist wingnuts who everybody thinks are a bit silly, plotting to overthrow the state than
2: most countries are? Yeah, I think they are obviously because of their history, and I think they've probably been quite scared over the last few years when we've seen the ra- the rise of the AfD, the the far right as well. So this is obviously something Germany is going to be particularly sensitive to. But I think, as Latika says, you look across the rest of Europe, for instance, and we've just you know had the the rise, the election of uh, the the brothers of Italy. In, in Italy uh, with Giorgio Maloney. Uh, we've had the the Swedish Democrats in Sweden. I think it's worth remembering that this is the second time in Germany we've had something similar to this. Back in April, there was a plan to uh, by some far-right activists to kidnap the health minister. Mm-hmm. And what the other thing I find very worrying about this is the influence of QAnon. So I think sometimes in Europe and Australia as well, we might have you know, looked across the, the Atlantic or whatever, looked across at the US and obviously been very concerned but being slightly dismissive that's those crazy yanks isn't it but actually you can see how through the internet through other uh you know social media outlets uh, various social media outlets how the influence of q has spread, and there is this this idea that the the deep state is perhaps uh, doing things uh, that ordinary people in inverted commas don't want. I know this particular group was concerned apparently that they thought they refused to recognize the modern German state because they said it was just a kind of corporation created by the allies uh, during the after the second world war, so it 's very much that idea of pointing to the other and saying that somebody else is to blame. And as, as various people have pointed out, it's very easy as a political message to say that it's not your fault, that your life has not turned out mm-hmm. how you wanted it to. You can always find somebody else to blame for that.
0: But the, the difficulty in dealing with this, though, Latika, for both law enforcement and for people just trying to engage with it, is it's very very hard to reason people out of that which they did not reason themselves into. And you, you mentioned that the, the attempted push in Washington of January the 6th. That like this seems to be rooted in just a wholly fantastical pretext. The things that these people believe are insane. They make no sense whatsoever. Where do you even start addressing it?
1: You know, if you go and look at a lot of the rhetoric that comes from Trump supporters and a lot of this crowd, there's a strong overlay between the way they talk and people who belong to cults talk. Mm. This is something that verges on religious, not to to use that word lightly, but some sort of belief in a mystical other, something that's not rational, something that's not explained to them. And so they make it up. And I think that that's really the big danger here. You cannot reason with this. There is no logic. There is no clear antidote to it. What we do have to be as democracies is really aware of it and really squelch it when we see it. I know somebody in the intelligence space who has an exercise when they were joining their job or their their new organisation had to do a a mock exercise where they joined the dark web to uh, look up how uh, ex-soldiers or ex-military or veterans would be targeted by uh, this exact sort of grouping. And to their surprise, they found it was not just a mock exercise, but they found very, very swiftly evidence of this. This was in the United States. So it's very real, this threat. The authorities are aware of it. I think it is a lot more detectable than perhaps Joe on the street might realise. Uh, but really, it's, it's terrifying because radicalization means that people from all over the world who 20 years ago would have been sitting out the back of whoop whoop with <laughs> no way of connecting with like-minded uh, lunatics are now being not only, you know, validated, but able to also incentivize others and, and encourage them to go out and do these acts.
0: Uh, and explain it for our listeners, Whoop Whoop is a mystical destination <laughs> somewhere in outback Australia, uh, in, invoked by our people as the absolute epitome of remoteness. Um, Simon, just a final quick thought on this. One of the many challenges faced here by democracies in dealing with this is that, of course, we enshrine the idea that people should be able to sort of say whatever they like like, and pronounce whatever they like, and have their own opinions, and indeed indulge bizarre fantasies. How interventionist, therefore, can any democracy and its police get? Because as I think we might be about to learn here, the line between posturing blowhard and actual menace can get crossed quite
2: suddenly. It's such a difficult balance, isn't it? I think the problem is that if the if the authorities are too heavy-handed, of course, actually this is really what a lot of these uh, people, some 20,000 members of this organisation, would like to see, wouldn't they? That would really... Does uh, this the trouble?
0: If you, if you act paranoid enough, eventually the authorities will act really in such a manner which yeah.
2: reinforces your paranoia. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, as I say, what, what they would like. And, and Atika, to your point about the cult, you know, that when you attack a group like this, instead of responding by saying, yes, perhaps you're right, we need to rethink our ideas, be a little bit more outward looking, of course, people become actually more inward looking and more determined, um, uh, 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 you know, in those views and opinions. So I think the challenge is, yes, of course, people have to have their loony views. um, And and they should be allowed to express those. And, and, you know, I believe in free speech. So that's absolutely no problem. But I think what the authorities have to do is then be very, very careful. When does that tip into the possibility of people being hurt? I mean, literally Mm. taking up weapons, explosives, whatever it might be. Uh, When does a bunch of eccentrics, shall we call them, become a terrorist group. It. Yes, <laughs> yeah, put it well, politely. Well,
0: we will doubtless follow the saga of Heinrich Thirteenth and his Merry Men as it unfolds. But for the moment, we will move along. As winter descends on Europe and a great many Europeans wonder how they will keep their homes warm until spring, a good few European leaders have been anxiously wondering out loud if there might be a means of wrapping up this unpleasantness in Ukraine sooner rather than later. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has spoken to Russian President Vladimir putin about the desirability of a diplomatic solution and french president emmanuel macron has floated the idea of offering security guarantees to russia by way of indirect response nato secretary general jen stoltenberg has declared that the conditions for a peaceful settlement do not as yet exist um latika it's not clear to me it may be clearer to you quite what olaf Scholz and emmanuel macron think they're doing here
1: I'm also very unclear about what security guarantees would please Putin, because he had plenty of security guarantees coming into the war. Ukraine had not been admitted into the European Union. Ukraine had not been admitted to NATO. There was the Bucharest Agreement. Uh, These guarantees meant nothing, because ultimately Putin is not dealing along these lines. He has a very historical view that is guiding his decision here to invade Ukraine. And equally, it's very difficult to see exactly what sort of compromise the Ukrainians want other than outright victory at this point. And they have momentum. Mm. And so really, I think the question we should be indulging in uh, is why are we not giving Ukraine what it needs to finish this war rather than letting them have some small gains, some big gains, uh, bleeding the country and then now this horrible winter that they will now face with such energy shortages and, and such commodity shortages. It just seems to me that the West is actually not pleasing anybody here.
0: Um, Simon, especially in light of what Latika has just said, I'm aware that this sounds like a somewhat rhetorical question. But in terms of those security guarantees and Russia... It, it's it's hard to imagine, at least I find it hard to imagine, what security guarantees you can offer to a country which is defended with nuclear weapons is 11 time zones wide, has, or at least rather had, a powerful military, and, you know, I don't think anybody in Western Europe is seriously thinking of taking another whack at it. I think the French and the Germans have got the message there.
2: I, well, I think so. Um, as uh, Alexei Danilov, who's head of Ukraine's National Security Council, said, someone wants to provide security guarantees to a terrorist and a killer state, uh, which I think it sums it up very well. I think the problem is both uh, leaders uh, are, are doing this uh, for different reasons. Macron has this... Uh inflated view, I would say, of his own importance and his ability Surely to not. influence uh, the political weather. Um, but it seems to have forgotten how he was basically made to look ridiculous sitting at the end of that table talking to, to Putin before the uh, invasion happened. Scholz is obviously very concerned about um, German business and wants to do anything he can just to calm this situation down so he can get back to, to trading uh, with Russia. But the, yeah, the problem is that this, this moment this couldn't be the, a worse moment to to appear to go wobbly or soft or whatever. You know, this, the, the Ukrainians finally, after months and months of incredible fighting, the momentum does seem to be behind them, doesn't it? And it does look as if Putin is on the back foot. And just when this is happening, to his delight, because let's face it, Putin's big thing is splitting the mm. West, splitting the opposition, uh, you're, you get both, you know, the two of the main leaders in Europe uh, appearing to go soft. It's interesting that in both cases they have been condemned by Putin people within their own countries and the international community and obviously Jens Saltenberg. i imagine i don't know whether he turned the air the air blue when he saw these two comments but he's it would seem he's very keen to make sure that theirs is not the view and certainly the west is determined to push ahead and i think the other danger of course is that there's a lot of coverage about whether uh, germany sorry whether russia will pause at the moment ready for a big onslaught in the new year and of course as we saw in in syria as we've seen previously if you do have any uh, if you try any kind of ceasefire with Putin and his regime, he will he will just abuse it. you know he will he will ad- adopt it for a while, uh, but then he's retrenching and then he will attack again. So um, yeah, I think this is a time when we really do need to stand uh, firm against him.
1: I think the other side of this coin too is what does Ukraine want in the end, in the event Mm. of this war ending? You know, Ukraine would rightly, I think, want to seek NATO membership, EU membership, um, provided that the leadership and the unification of the country that we've seen during the war means they are now able to get on top of their own corruption – it would be very, uh, I think, expected in our populations that they would be admitted into those clubs. Mm-hmm. So they're not the security guarantees that Putin would be after if we were to indulge that for a moment. And Ukraine is going to have some pretty strong requests of us as well. And those will be, I think, a lot more louder and powerful than Russia's.
0: Uh, slight counterpoint on this, though, Latika. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg's line uh, has been, uh, he, he said this plug for the Foreign Desk, uh, on the Foreign Desk a few weeks ago when we interviewed him at length, and he said it again today that it is basically up to Ukraine to decide what the conditions are. But is there an argument that the colossal quantities of money and material that other countries are putting into this does give other countries a say. Sure,
1: but Ukraine is fighting our fight. Mm. If Ukraine loses this, we all lose. We all have a revanchist Russia in dominating Europe. We have an emboldened China in the Indo-Pacific. Nobody... Uh, who is supporting Ukraine wants to see Ukraine fail because it would mean the failure of us all.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the emboldened China, not because I'm pleased about an emboldened China, but because it does rather tee up our next item. Uh, it is 81 years this month since the first American service personnel were deployed in Australia. 4,600 of them aboard four US Navy ships rerouted to Queensland from the Philippines in the wake of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbour 81 years ago today. At the height of World War II, roughly a fifth of of Brisbane's population, was dressed in American khaki. A newly proposed stepping up of US military rotations to Australia won't be quite so dramatic, but it is nevertheless significant and will include American stores, munitions and fuel. Um, Latika, first of all... Is this going to be controversial in Australia? The American relationship with Australia has occasionally been a bit rickety. Most infamously in 1942, the Battle of Brisbane, three days of rioting between Australian and American service personnel.
1: I mean, we would never see those sorts of scenes. It's interesting you asked this, and I'm really glad you did, because when I was a reporter starting out in Canberra, um, it was in the shadow of the Iraq war, and mm. there was a lot. In fact, it was a, a guiding uh, political kind of movement behind the incoming Labor government that we had become too close to the United States. George W. Bush was asking of us things that we shouldn't have done. They weren't in Australia's interests, and they damaged world security. Now... Fast forward to when President Obama visited Australia and uh, it was a Labor government and announces the first deployment of US Marines in the Northern Territory. That was actually a bit controversial at the time. Mm. And I remember the the stories being dropped the night before for for the media and the sensitivities around this because uh, the Labor left, for instance, were no, no fans of this policy. Fast forward another decade and you have what I think is the most extraordinary, unsaid... Approval of this sort of policy where, and this is, is really, I think, all down to President Xi, uh, the politics in Australia could not be more supportive of this sort of position. You might see, if you were lucky, some sort of pushback from the Greens, but I doubt it. I think this is overwhelmingly supported in Australia. And in fact, I think people might have been saying, I thought there might be a bit more.
0: <laughs> um, Simon, Are we likely to see China
2: pretend to get upset about this at any level, do you think? I think what's interesting, I mean, there was a time, certainly, when I imagine, given their position, that they probably would have been very dismissive, wouldn't they? I think the problem is, uh, you've got to put this also in the context of the domestic political situation, haven't you? You've got the the COVID lockdown, which has obviously just been eased, um, but it has not been good at all for mm. President Xi. Uh, you've got problems with the Chinese economy; it's it's slowing. Growth is slowing there. There's sort of other problems with the economy, uh, such as the the property uh, ructions as well. Evergrande, the big property company, which is in a difficult financial uh, situation. So I, you get the feeling that perhaps in this situation, President Xi is feeling slightly on the back foot at home so whether that means that he's going to be even more sensitive to this uh you know to, to uh to uh what he might see as sort of some kind of persecution internationally i think that would make it a little bit more difficult and then of course there's always the issue of taiwan which comes up periodically and uh you know i know the the uh, foreign uh ministry spokesman in beijing reiterated that taiwan is an inalienable part of china's territory so i think uh the the big danger of course is not so much a strong china but perhaps a weak China or uh, a President Xi, uh, the great helmsman, as he says, echoing Mao Zedong, uh, who feels that he's on the back foot and things are difficult for him. And I think that domestic situation could make this very difficult.
1: I also think it's very interesting in this, this announcement came out as a result of what's called the Osman talks when the Australian foreign and defence ministers meet this time in, in Washington. And When you read the transcript of that press conference, I have never seen China said so many times by ministers who normally like to pretend that every defence and foreign policy setting is about regional security. They're just out loud now saying this is China, this is about China. I mean, officially the Quad is not even supposed to be about China. We all know it is, but no one is on the record saying this is about China. And I think there's probably been a calculation gone on that China has done very bad things to Australia in slapping billions of trade sanctions on it. But it's actually Xi who's come to the table and and held a bilateral with our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, on the sidelines of the G20. And so that shows you that Australia's positioning hasn't changed. We haven't acquiesced to China. In fact, our view is that China must lift those sanctions for things to progress. It's actually China that's now coming back to the table just a little now. No policy position has meaningfully changed. But I think the days where Australia was very frightened to upset China, offend China, make pointed remarks about China, I think those days have now receded.
0: Uh, And, Simon, there is, uh, well, a historical irony, arguably, today of all days, that when those Americans were deployed to Australia uh, in 1941, that was, of course, because the United States and Australia were at war with Japan, um, and it is indicative of how much that part of the world has changed, that Japan has now, in fact, been invited... To
2: join in on this, yeah, and interesting Japan, which of course, for years has has been neutral uh, internationally, is now sort of um, becoming more active in this way. and And I think um it just shows how, uh, the, China is driving, making the political weather here and driving so many different alliances and, and uh, groupings and stuff. And I think um, this is an example of how it's sort of real politic, isn't it? I mean, Japan will want to know what can protect us. And I suppose, again, I come back to Taiwan, uh, Yeah, to Taiwan, and I come back to, you know, if you come back to the other uh, uh, sort of uh, Chinese military activity around the area, you can see that Japan is, is getting nervous about this uh, and, and quite rightly so. And so I think... Um, They're obviously taking action here, partly for economic reasons, but also uh, for political reasons because they they are in fear of their security, as a lot of people are in the area. And as I say, it just depends how with a President Xi who's clearly feeling under some attack now. It depends whether he does the unthinkable, perhaps, and I suppose does what a lot of countries, what a lot of leaders, uh, autocrats do when things look bad domestically. Do they then focus on Mm. something Internationally, to sort of take the uh, the focus away. Uh, Latika, there's just one uh,
0: somewhat nerdish Australian political point I wanted to pick up on, and you, you mentioned that labour governments have often actually been surprisingly um, amenable to a close relationship with America. Is it arguable that in Australia, actually, labour governments are more likely to be amenable to America than our liberal slash conservative ones? This goes all the way back to John Curtin, Australia's great World War II leader of the Labour Party, who said, without, I mean, he said this partly because he hated Winston Churchill and didn't like Britain very much, but without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America Free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with Britain.
1: Look, I think everyone in Australia would regard the US as their form first and foremost ally. That did take a bit of a battering during the Bush-Howard years, during the mm. Iraq War. I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. And if there was ever any risk to the relationship, I think it was around about then. But China has really changed that equation. But to the point about it being the left, I sometimes think there are things that the left can do which is easier to get past the public. Mm. Sometimes there are things that the right can do for the public. Sometimes uh, things are better trusted with the left. And maybe this is one of them where the normal critics feel more comfortable with their own guardians in charge of the keys than the Conservatives. But having said that, uh, you know, the prime minister that created AUKUS, which is going to be one of the biggest security legacies of, of Australian history was Scott Morrison, a wildly unpopular um, Mm. prime minister. He negotiated this uh, and with Boris Johnson, who was also kind of out of favor in, in Australia, of course uh, with, with Joe Biden, a Democrat uh, president. So, I think really the position on China has become so bipartisan in many of our countries and particularly the United States and Australia that on this, I think it's uh, all the way with Uncle Sam.
0: I really do. <laughs> well, finally tonight, what is this year's most mispronounced word. As we approach the end of the year, the language learning platform Babbel, together with the British Institute of Verbatim Reporters, which is an organisation of subtitlers, has released a new report on the words most mispronounced by politicians, newsreaders and public figures in 2022. We will catch up with our panel to hear their thoughts shortly, but first, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Todd Erisman, try not mispronouncing that, who is the head of Learning Content and Innovation at Babel to find out more
3: about this year's findings. Uh, well, of course, we're always interested in topics where linguistics intersects with popular culture, and this is kind of the quintessential topic for that, since so many of these things are connected with things that are happening happening in the news and popular culture on social media and so on. So, that's one of the things we we love to sort of be a part of is that conversation
4: and talk us through some of the top 10 then some are particularly relevant to this year we've got carolean on there which obviously refers to this new kind of royal era that britain is in since queen elizabeth died we have uh, volodymyr zelensky on there but others are more evergreen uh, like ikea or actually i should probably say ikea i think is the is the correct pronunciation
3: <laughs> yeah exactly ikea is just one of these that uh, i've i've actually experienced this in my own daily life many, many times talking with my friends and everyone seems to have a, a different version of it for themselves. But um, yeah, uh, so that one is definitely more evergreen. I, yeah, I would say all of the other ones other than IKEA uh, are somehow connected to the news. So we have, of course, uh, Rishi Sunak becoming prime minister. We have um, some weather events. I, th- I think every year we've had some kind of weather event involved. This year it's the Cyclone Batserai so I think it's both a very typical list for this year and uh, and at the same time, we always have different sort of different foreign languages and whatnot that are coming into the into the discussion. I think my favorite one this year is the undersea volcano. And um, I think it was in Polynesia with Hunga uh, Tonga, Hunga Har, Haapi. Sorry, that one's probably the hardest for me to pronounce as well. But yeah.
4: What about accents then? Because obviously in the UK, we have a huge number of regional accents. For each of these words, is there a correct pronunciation that, that can be applied across all accents?
3: I think with so many of these from this year, we're dealing with, well, not in every case, but in many of the cases, we're dealing with pronunciations from another language, from an, on some other origin. And in that case, we def- there definitely is sort of a correct pronunciation for that dialect. I'll, I'll talk about one example in a second. Um, but of course, between, say, British English and American English, for example, we the most prominent difference or one of the most prominent differences is the pronunciation of R, for example. So my American accent, I have a very strong, we call it a rhotic R. And in British English, it's a vocalic R, so more like an aw sound. So if we look at this, take the cyclone again, cyclone Batserai. that could differ a little bit between dialects here and there. But So there is a sort of original pronunciation in the origin dialect. But I think once once you get into the di- different dialects of Great Britain and everywhere within the English-speaking world, there will be minor variations on that. So one of the examples I like is the, um, the Norwegian football star. So his name is Erling Holland. And this sort of AA pronunciation in, in Norwegian is really unique because it's somewhere in between an A and an O. And uh, I think English speakers would probably represent every variation from A to O within there. And I think as long as you're trying to sort of reflect that slightly different pronunciation, um, you're, you're winning, let's say, in Attempting to to get that correct pronunciation. There's there's always a big gray area in pronunciation, so um, we shouldn't ever feel hesitant to try it out. Uh, I think everyone giving it their best go is really the goal here. So.
4: Several of the words on the list this year are from foreign languages, as you mentioned, but English is also known for having some strange and unpredictable pronunciations. Famously, there are something like seven ways to pronounce the letters O-U-G-H. Are English words uniquely difficult to pronounce because of these weird spellings?
3: Yeah, the English English orthography or writing um, has has a really fascinating history, actually, and it basically gets down to the fact that when English writing, the English writing system was created, first of all, it was a really long time ago, and we've made very few adaptations to it as the language has changed over the centuries. And so what you end up with then is the language evolving, changing, and and pronunciations and so on changing organically among speakers, but a sort of writing system that's been locked in time a little bit. And the result is basically that a lot of these sounds, like you mentioned the O-U-G-H, those used to be pronounced if you go back to sort of um, early, earlier English times, back towards towards the Middle English period, you would pronounce something like uh, through, uh, which is spelled T-H-R-O-U-G-H, something like throw, with that sort of sound at the end. Obviously, that sound has disappeared since, and we're left with kind of the system that uh, all learners and all speakers kind of have to just learn as either as children or adults. So that's that's it in a nutshell.
4: <laughs> and just finally, no one is immune to pronouncing words wrong. You know, native English speakers or people who speak English as a as a second language, and even people who pronounce words, read words for a living. What's your advice for recovering when you get something wrong, even if it's in public or on air?
3: Yeah, I think. I think, in general, with a lot of these there's there's sort of an understanding between you know the parties that are that are having the conversation or on air or wherever that that these are difficult words to pronounce. And so I think the best thing to do is make your best go at it. I think my advice to people who are going on air is to to always review those those names that you might have to pronounce and and sort of make the effort um, at figuring out what that correct pronunciation is. And if you get it wrong, I think the best thing to do is is just um, acknowledge the error and say uh, we'll get it right next time. Um, I think pronunciation is such a tricky thing, both in language learning and sort of language performance, if you want to call it that, um, on air. That we're all we're all human. We're always going to make mistakes, especially in in sort of this increasingly international world where languages and concepts and names and and so on are are crossing over so often on a daily basis.
0: That was Todd Erisman at Babbel speaking with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Still with me are Simon Brook and Latika Burke. Um, Simon, first of all, are there any that you have struggled with? I, of course, have never in all my hours of broadcasting so much <laughs> as not. mispronounced anything. And if I did, it was almost certainly the fault of the person whose name it was for not being called
2: something simpler. and having a proper spelling. Yeah, I have to say, this is a sensitive issue for me. I was just thinking about that because when I was... Uh, I remember being at school and uh, doing a sort of a big... Debate in front of the whole school about Shakespeare, I think it was, and uh, and uh, very pompously for a twelve-year-old boy describing that Shakespeare's prose is full of hyperbole <laughs> and. Uh which seemed so obvious to me, but of course I was absolutely... You know, I mean, mean at least you didn't go hyperbole. Well, oh, you, it'd stole be even worse. My, you stole
1: <laughs> my contribution.
2: Sorry. For, it is awful. I have to say, last Christmas, though, I had a, I've had got a friend, she still is a friend, who was describing how she was buying another friend... Until a, she hears this. Well, she, yeah, yes, yeah. she probably won't be... Well, she <laughs> didn't laugh about it. She said she's buying a friend a catheter for Christmas, and I thought, gosh, that's oh my different. goodness, I know, that's, that's sort of that's, like a, that, that's an intimate gesture, exactly. A, a very, <laughs> completely <laughs> rather, a, a very important but rather unpleasant sort of um, mm. medical device. And she was describing how beautiful this thing was and how she'd got one was of a Swiss design. And I was oh thinking, that is really weird. I, I'm uh, sure the Smith, the Swiss make it. See, there we go. I'm, <laughs> I'm,
0: if they can pronounce I'm, it, I'm sure the Swiss make an absolutely excellent
2: catheter, but the, but they also make, and this is what I suddenly realized she wasn't saying catheter, she was saying cafeter. Like what I would call a cafetiere, is that just me or something? Which was no, on the. No, cafetiere. Pos- oh, like a
0: coffee thing. It, yeah, absolutely. And those exactly. are two things
2: you really don't want
0: to get. No, mixed oh my up. goodness. <laughs> when oh you're applying them, well, yeah, e- exactly. Exactly. Um, Latika, have you have you struggled with anything?
1: Look, one word I I absolutely detest even to this day is, uh, and I, I I can hear the pause and hesitation in my mm-hmm. voice as I as I try it. Phenomenon. I hate this word. And I used to struggle yeah, you with always it. always wonder
0: whether the M's coming from the, the, the M. Um, yeah. where, where do you, you start? Right. Neither, neither sound quite right, do they?
1: But weirdly, phenomenal is easy to say. Yeah. But the other word I, I just hate. The repetition. Hate. Um, but I did, I think, manage to get it out. But. Hyperbole is the one that kills me because <laughs> our one of our former Prime Ministers, Julie Gillard, went on the very, you know, serious flagship current affairs and comes out and responds to criticism saying, well, that's all a bit of hyperbole. And of course, everybody kind of you could hear the screams <sighs> oh, of laughter no. down the entire press gallery in in Parliament House Canberra. But I that word is now so repeated that often when I look at the word hyperbole, I see hyperbole and I am terrified of committing the same mistake and it has has actually happened in Australia where people have gone on now to say hyperbole in in news and in
0: politics. Because there is, I mean she could have just styled it out by saying that's how we talk in Adelaide and and, and it might (laughs) be. And people
1: would have accepted it. People
0: would have believed it. But that right there does prompt the question Simon of whether this can become contagious and one of the examples that gets, and we must all now be very careful that does get cited is the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt. Now famously... Once or twice people fell over that, a possibly slightly Freudian mishap, but now I think what happens is that broadcasters, especially when he is sitting right there, just get it in their heads, saying, hunt, not the other thing, hunt, not the other thing in your head, so then when you do actually say it out
2: loud, you say the other thing. You you don't want to. I don't even want to say the name because I'm just gonna. It's like, don't say it, don't say it, sort of thing. It's like if you meet somebody who's, I don't know, got a big nose or thick glasses, you don't want to go, hello. You know that that word in your mind sort of thing. So poor Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, I mean he, he's managed to be Chancellor, but I have to say, I think uh, when that particular presenter got that wrong, so unbelievably. But then what was so awful was I remember he was lo- he was obviously trying to control himself, the presenter. I mean, after he'd made this terrible gaffe, and it just sounded ev- it just made the whole thing worse. So uh, yeah, I have to say, luckily that Jeremy Hunt is no longer the <laughs> culture secretary now as a Chancellor. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, risky, I'm mystified you
1: know? by this one because. Uh, the sounds that you would make her huh and kuh, are very different sounds in your mouth to reach for but i i, so I, I think I, it was
0: i think it was the confluence of hunt was the culture and culture secretary <laughs> it was hunt and culture secretary and once, oh, it, once oh, you transpose okay, okay, once okay. you transpose those two now that, I that's where people get muddled. I, I do have in my family somebody who married uh, a, a thoroughly splendid fellow of the surname Hunt, and she said, "Yeah, when we when we were naming our children, just like every possible, obviously anything that ends in a hard C is out, out of the uh, But just <laughs> yes. absolutely went through every possible permutation you could possibly. Yeah, it's it's, it's live ammunition that one. <laughs> um, but that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our Mercer." fully easily pronounced panelists latika burke and simon brooke today's show was produced by tom webb carlotta Rebello, and lillian Fawcett, and researched by emily sands our sound engineer was callum McLean. i'm andrew muller here in london the daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks for listening